Hello to those who invest time in watching sports movies, and thanks for listening to Scoring at the Movies episode number 77 with the Ray Bork Paul Coffee podcast today. We do indeed review sports films, and we always spoil them from front to back. I'm the ethereal caddy who never shuts up and will take $5 guaranteed, Ryan Shanks Ellis. And here's the legitimately good golfer with the authentic swing, who's only suffered three heart attacks on the links, not six, a piddling three, Captain Chris DiGregorio. Well, as we've talked about at length on this podcast, Ryan, I am now 40 years old, so I just assume that heart attacks at any given point are just a risk I have to live with. But I appreciate the kind intro, and if you don't want to own up to the fact that you accidentally moved your microphone a little bit just before we got rolling today, that's okay with me. We won't penalize you for that. It'll just be between you and I. Nobody else will even know, (laughs) except for the fact that I just told everyone. But that's cool, man. It's cool. (laughs) That scene really touched me. It is such a good and touching moment from the perspective of Matt Damon's character. The problem is, earlier in the movie, the kid... Of course, Jack Lemmon's younger self in this thing. Mm-hmm. He himself, I thought, had a fantastic little monologue about why he, as a kid, loves golf and everything it means to him. I don't remember any of the particulars of this movie. So when I saw it recently, I thought this is one of the best encapsulations about what makes golf such a great game that I've heard anywhere. And it came out of the mouth of this little kid. It's just you and the ball and you have only yourself to blame. And it's like a game about honor and being honest with yourself and with the game. So the fact that it was the kid saying, just pick it up or just don't own up to the penalty. I'm like, oh, that kind of undercuts the earlier sentiment a little bit. I kind of wish maybe it was Bagger Vance saying that to Matt Damon's character and not even saying it from a place of actually do this thing, but rather similarly to what he was doing in the first round, right? Like as a reverse psychology kind of move because earlier on he's like you know just shank into the woods and we'll get out of here just ignore it don't worry and just for like the final little bit of reverse psychology to really click juna into that mindset of just be honest with myself about who i am what i want the game of life all that kind of fun stuff one of the things i like the most about golf is it lets you sit with yourself and come to terms with everything that happens out there is all on you you can't point the finger anywhere else so you have to learn a little bit of introspection and self-control and ability to take ownership of what you've just done. I think these are really great elements of the game. And this was a good moment of capturing that. Podcast is over. What else can I say? (laughs) All right. Well, next week we're going to talk about (laughs) something other than golf. Now that was really excellent. And you are the golfer between us. I've only ever been on a driving range a few times and many putted. We've probably talked about this on Caddyshack and... He must have done some of the Happy Gilmore. Happy Gilmore. Yeah, we need to talk about some of the comparisons about (laughs) Happy Gilmore, too, at some point. I think the kid can be excused for one big thing. He's a kid. Mm -hmm. He can feel that way earlier in the film and then realize, yeah, but this is different. This is Juna. And one of the key moments in that whole scene is that Hagen and Jones are the ones saying, yeah, but you probably didn't touch it. We don't want to win this way is what they might as well be saying. They never call him Renolf. He's like Brody in Homeland. That's right. Everybody, including his wife, call him Brody. You almost never hear Renolf. It's always Juna. What an odd name, too, eh? Renolf Juna. 
There are some unusual names in this. This is one of the better names movies we've had in a while. It is in the South, but Bagger Vance, Renolf Juna. Adele is not that unusual, but Invergordon is a last name. Now, Walter Hagen and Bobby Jones are real people, pretty ordinary names. They, by the way, played a real match in 1925, and the self-penalty happened to Jones at the U.S. Open that year. He was playing against Hagen. Huh. Most, if not everyone else in this movie, is not real, including Renolf Juna. Okay, before we get any further, I saw you take a sip there a minute ago. You're drinking not a beer again tonight. What is that? My excuse for this tonight is an homage to both the home of golf, Scotland, and to Walter Hagen in this movie. He's drinking a lot, and usually when we hear him order a drink, it's a double scotch. So I got myself a little neat scotch and a Glencairn glass going tonight. Fair enough. I, of course, am drinking my usual, by the way, CC, and I believe Diet Pepsi could be Coke Zero. One of those. But as for the name of this movie in Quebec, it was Un Caddie Exceptionnel. <laughs> Wait, an exceptional caddy? That was the translation? Well, Will Smith is top build in this movie, even though he's not in it all that much. We don't see him for a while, and then he's gone before it's over. So, The Legend of Bagger Vance was released by DreamWorks and Fox in the prestigious Oscar bait slot of November 3rd, 2000. Oscar bait or not... What a bomb, what a bomb, what a bomb, what a mighty big bomb. It cost $80 million and only made 40 And this is Robert Redford directing Matt Damon, who was certainly hot at that time, and Will Smith, who was even hotter, and Charlize Theron, who was certainly on the upswing as well. Redford himself involved, and yet this movie was attended by no one. I saw it on the big screen that year. Looking back at my records, I gave it a 7 out of 10, but I had not seen it since. We'll get to our thoughts in a few minutes about that. But I just said a second ago, I'm going to explain the Uncaddy Exceptionnel thing. That leads to my nutshell. Legend of Bagger Vance in a nutshell. God is my caddy. Yeah. Bagger Vance, pretty obviously. And I'd forgotten this element that it's this obvious, because I hadn't seen the movie in 21 years or almost 21 years, is God. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that too. I didn't see this in the theater, but I did see this shortly after its release. I must have rented the DVD or something. I did love seeing Jack Lemmon. I forgot he was in this also. His last movie. Yeah, I love Jack Lemmon, even in voiceover and the few bits of him we got actually live action are just always so great. But I'd forgotten that ending moment where he's just beckoning Jack Lemmon, and I forget the character that he portrays throughout the movie as the kid and all that kind of stuff, but he's beckoning... Hardy Greaves. That's right. Into the fescue, right? And it just reminded me so much of Field of Dreams... And Doc going off into the cornfield to play with the baseball players. Right. It made a little bit less sense to me within the context of this movie, because at no point, other than just being sort of mystically wise, there was none of that really punch you in the face with the mysticism of Bagger Vance until that very end moment. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, so is Jack Lemmon's character just going to finish his round of golf and disappear and nobody will ever know what becomes of him? Is he married? (laughs) Is he coming home for dinner? What's going on? I also like the fact that he managed to play a round of golf by himself on a golf course where there's apparently just nobody around. And so he has a heart attack and he's just laid out on the grass and nobody notices that this old man is just down for the count. (laughs) You could argue he already had the heart attack and was already dead. But this is his fantasy about being dead. And then he sees this godlike figure, a person that he actually met and knew. And I had forgotten if Will Smith was supposed to be absolutely corporeal. I always get that word wrong. I think it's corporeal to everybody in the movie, or is it just to Damon and maybe to Hardy Greaves, the kid? Right. But no, he's addressed by a lot of other people, including the guy at the end, you'll never work in this town again. And the guy doesn't say the word he should have said. We know what he was thinking, but we'll get into the racism later on. But as for Hardy at the end of the movie, Jack Lemmon's character in his last movie, 
that's a great touch, like we said with Burt Lancaster in Field of Dreams. His last movie moment, because he had other made-for-TV things, and I think he was on TV as well, but his last big-screen movie was effectively dying in Field of Dreams and going out with that great moment by being told by Ray Liotta, you were good. And Jack Lemmon's last big-screen moment was effectively dying and being beckoned by this young star, Will Smith, and him going off into the great beyond. And a line that probably didn't mean much to you at the time, but I'll explain when Lemon says, a little bit of magic time, when he first drives. Mm-hmm. Jack Lemon apparently always said, I always heard this is before every take. I would hope it'd be before every shot and every take, because that would be annoying. But apparently he always said, whatever the movie was, magic time. Oh. So for him saying that in the movie is meta, addressing something he apparently always said in reality. That's cute. So maybe he was already dead, and then he sees this guy that he knew before, and then he manifests that this is his beckoning angel. But it also says on Wikipedia here that his late wife used to ask him why he kept playing a game that seems destined to kill him. And he has all these heart attacks. So she's not alive anymore either. But I wasn't even as touched by that, which was nice, as I was by Damon having honor. A guy who obviously has a big arc on this movie. Wow, this guy experienced a lot in his life. Our third, by the way, Matt Damon movie, because we've covered him in Rounders. We've covered him in Invictus. Three unusual sports, too. Not so much golf, maybe, but cards and rugby and now golf. I feel like there's a lot you could talk about, good and bad. I didn't know it was a Redford directorial movie. That was a little bit surprising to me. I'd forgotten some of the actors that appeared in this movie, including Charlize Theron, including Jack Lemmon. But it almost feels to me like this movie isn't quite sure what it wants to be. I understand it was based on a book, and I think that earlier book itself was inspired by a Hindu parable or something about Krishna inspiring a warrior that didn't want to fight anymore to effectively take up arms again. So it's kind of like the same arc that Matt Damon's character has being visited by his God kind of thing. It's love story to the game of golf and what that game can mean to an individual and comparing it to the journey of life. And I feel like a lot of that stuff is quite sincere and heartfelt and conveyed pretty well, whether it's via Matt Damon, whether it's through the kid or even through the actions of Bobby Jones and Walter Hagen, especially when they're initially introduced. Hagen in particular comes across as this dipshitty celebrity of the 30s who's just interested in making money and womanizing. But by the end of it, you kind of get that sincerity of what the game means to him. And you can see how the honor of the game means a lot to him, too. You get that sort of experience through a number of characters. But then you got the flip side of it, where it kind of wants to be a war movie that talks about PTSD in a kind of flip way. It kind of wants to be a love story. But tonally, it feels weird because every time Charlie Theron's character was dealing with Matt Damon, all of a sudden the background music that was like, and then she started bebopping and scatting all over him all of a sudden and making fun of him. What is going on? Is this a serious movie? Is it kind of like a retrospective and heartfelt love letter to golf? Is it a romantic comedy? I got kind of confused about where it wanted to go at various points. I feel like it ended up in an okay place in a lot of respects, although like you mentioned earlier, there's certainly problematic stuff in there, but from a general impression perspective, it feels complex to me. And it feels like you could spend a long time picking apart this thing from a number of different perspectives if you wanted to. That may be why it failed. Maybe they couldn't find an audience because they were trying to do too many things and serve too many masters. Seabiscuit, this movie reminds me a lot of that. And that also tried to cram in a lot of American history in a fairly short period of time. And it's set around the same time as this one is. Mm -hmm. We know it starts in 1928 in Savannah, Georgia. Most of the movie's set in Savannah. We see some scenes in the war, but effectively it's a Georgia movie. And that's where Juna's from. But we also know that when the match is going on, it's either 1931 
or maybe 1932, because movies took a long time sometimes to play in every single market in America. And Savannah's not exactly a huge market. But The Public Enemy, a movie that Bev and I covered not that long ago, was out in 1931. It could have been playing for a good year later in a place like Savannah. So I don't know exactly when the match is taking place, but it's either 31 or 32. Juna's arc, though, is so thorough because we see a fairly rushed montage of him being a championship-level golfer when he's very young. Right. Goes to the war, like you said, World War One. has PTSD. We didn't call it that probably even in 2000. It's certainly not back in 1917, 18, that time frame. Wins the Medal of Honor, disappears. Then the Depression hits. He comes home. He's an alcoholic. But he decides he wants to be a golfer. Adele convinces him because she's got to save her own skin. Well, he can't find his swing, actually. That's one of the smarter things. We saw that in Tin Cup, too, where Roy, also a great golfer and a phenom, very similar. Tin Cup actually came before Bagger Vance, but in some ways it's similar because you've got Roy being the young, well, not young, but the underdog phenom. But in this, it's just the gentleman's ending, and they're all happy. And that also was really touching to me because that makes sense in golf. It might feel like a bit of a, I'll get you a tie for Christmas kind of thing. You hear about that in football all the time. But in golf, it makes sense. Settling for a tie and what is already an exhibition match. Bobby Jones has told Juna he's going to retire so he can spend time with his family and be a lawyer. So all of those things play out well. But yeah, the movie tries to cram in a lot. And you said about the PTSD flashback. When he's in the woods and Bagger is trying to coax him through one last time, when Juno imagines hearing the sounds of World War I, we haven't heard anything or seen anything from the war in this movie for about an hour and 45 minutes. And then out of nowhere, we're reminded that he is dwelling with this. But he was able to kick being an alcoholic because he wanted to, which is not the way that works. <laughs> And he was able to not think about World War One that we knew about until this moment. And then his God figure, his angel figure, just says, no, nah, get past that. And also, am I mistaken? I may have been taking a note. I didn't hear the line that I know I heard in the trailer, which was, it's not show shot, but I go, no, it's yours. Was that in the movie or is that in the trailer? I didn't hear that in the movie either. Okay. I think this would have been a better movie if they just left out all the World War related stuff. You can certainly have a young golf phenom that has other tragedies in his life that set him down a darker path and just leave out the PTSD element. Even if we view it from a lens of 20 years ago where we knew a lot less about what that kind of mental trauma means for somebody. I get it was a stressful situation that he was in these woods. But when we first meet the man, he's getting drunk in the woods. There's this implication in that final shot that it is being in this woodland terrain where his unit got decimated that sets off the panic attack. But he's been there. We know he's been there. We've seen him there and it's never affected him before. It did feel a little jarring and out of left field to me. I was thinking a lot about it from a historic perspective, because when we're first introduced to it, it's a World War I movie, and then it's a period piece. So I think historical accuracy has to be considered. And we've talked about so many movies, it feels like relatively recently in the run of this podcast, where just the barest amount of research on the part of the writers, whether it has to do with the sport itself or the time period, would have gone a long way towards fixing some of the glaring plot holes or issues that we at least took umbrage with. And in this case, it felt like the writers, and I don't know if this is because of the book source material or it's the screenwriters or the director, whether it was Redford, but they did their homework. You mentioned Walter Hagen and Bobby Jones are both two huge figures in the history of golf. And it felt like they captured the public personas of those two men relatively well. Hagen was known to be kind of the playboy of golf. 
He was the first millionaire golfer. He was the guy that was quoted as saying, I don't want to be a millionaire. I just want to live like one. <laughs> he actually gave up or at least very much limited his professional tournament playing because he realized exhibition golf was more lucrative for him. And of course, you have that great scene in this movie where he's trying to get Juna to go on an exhibition tour with him so they can play for 10 grand a weekend. Which reminded me, incidentally, of Han and Luke at the end of the first Star Wars movie. I wanted to come with this. You're pretty good to scrape. <laughs> Remember when Han says that to Luke at the end of the first movie yeah. before Luke and everybody tried to go to destroy the Death Star and then Han comes back and of course has his great arc by saving the day and being a good guy. But it's the same thing where it's, let me bring the young guy along and he'll be good to scrape. In this case, good in a scrape and golf. Kind of like a grudging acceptance. But it's not like, hey, you know, you're pretty good. Let's go play. I'll be 50 It's like, no, you will play with me. I, Walter Hagen, will expect to always win and I'll get 70%, but you can come along and get 30% of the take. Which would be a pretty good living. I'll do that. Three grand every week or two in 1931, 100% I'll do that. And you were talking about the year, whether it was 31 and 32. I think it is 31 because Bobby Jones famously won the Grand Slam in a single year in 1930 and then almost immediately retired after that to be exactly what they described this movie, family man, lawyer, all that kind of fun stuff. Because he was, I guess, a very educated and intelligent guy in addition to being a phenom of a golf player. Although it was weird for all these things that I give them credit for researching. Weird that they portrayed Bobby Jones as a blonde man because there's all kinds of pictures of him with slick black hair. So the fact that he was blonde threw me for a little bit of a loop, but that's my golf nerd nitpickiness, I guess, as much as anything. I did like Joel Gretsch, though, his look and everything. I think he really did seem like he belonged in 1930. Damon is somebody that, for the most part, seems like he can be a period actor as well. Some actors can't really fit back in the period of time, but Joel Gretsch who was in Minority Report a couple years later for, again, DreamWorks and did a ton of TV. I liked him a lot. I thought he had a really low-key presence in a good way. Yep. He reminded me quite a bit of, uh, what was his name? And again, Seabiscuit, George. He reminded me quite a bit of George. But there's more of a friendship we see built up. These guys have known each other a few days. Although these guys probably have more on-screen time together because more than half this movie is the big match. Yep. But Bobby tells... Juno, he's going to retire. Maybe he told other people, but he's paying him that respect. I like the way he was played. I like the way he was written. I thought they did a good job with him, as they did with Bruce McGill, who was, interestingly, the year after this, in Ali with Will Smith. Oh, really? And before this, he was in Courage Under Fire with Matt Damon. Uh -huh. I don't know if he shared scenes with them in those movies, but he was in those two movies with those other two guys at the times. Bruce McGill is a really good character actor. He's been a ton of big things. I thought they both did a good job as Hagen and Jones, actually, but I actually was more impressed in a lot of ways between the two of them with Gretsch because of that low-key, friendly, I want to win, but I want to win with honor, and I would definitely not want to destroy you. And he also probably would make that offer of, we'll go on tour, but I get most of the money. If he ever decided to take Juno on tour, he'd probably say, yeah, 50-50. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't realize they'd all worked so closely together in so small a time period. I do have to agree with you. I think of them all, and frankly, I thought all three of them, McGill, Gretsch, and Damon, they all did a good job of looking more or less correct for what I would expect of a 1930s character. Of the three of them actually playing the game, Gretsch has a fantastic golf swing. As somebody that watches the game a lot and plays the game a lot, his swing is great. I can't say the same of Damon or McGill, and one of the climactic scenes, the tee shot on 18, where the light is being lost and they're given the opportunity to call the match, but they say, no, we're going to play on. It isn't just dark. It is night. They yell at everyone, pull your cars up around the green, turn on the headlights. I want everyone's car up there so we can actually see what happens. 
but we get those tee shots kind of in dusk, so it's obscuring everybody. But you get McGill teeing off and Gretsch teeing off, so Bobby Jones and Walter Hagen, and then Matt Damon's character steps up, and it cuts away to a little bit of a longer shot after the close-up on Damon's face. It cuts away. And it is the most obvious body double shot I've ever seen. The guy looks nothing like Damon, doesn't have the same body type as Damon. <laughs> I had to rewind it three times because it took me so much out of the moment just to see the sudden body shift. I'm like, wait, is that supposed to be Juna teeing off? It doesn't look anything like him. That could be because Damon wasn't a golfer before this movie. He doesn't have a good swing, I gotta say. Yeah, he doesn't really, does he? It's also curious that Redford was thinking of casting himself... And he was way too old to play this character, although it's a made-up character, so I guess you could age him up and you can make that he's been in the wilderness for a long time, not just a while, but a long time. And also they thought about having Morgan Freeman play Bagger Vance. Now, I would love to see this era, not so much now in 2021, but I would love to see Redford and Freeman work together. And I think they maybe did something. I can't remember. Maybe not. But I would have loved to have seen them do a golf movie where Freeman has to play. Hey, this became famous three years later when he was in Bruce Almighty. He's always thought of as the voice of God. Yeah. Whether or not the black, and people called it this before, so it's the magical Negro that's been in a lot of movies, and that's obviously what Will Smith is playing here. Well, Margaret Freeman would have been even better cast in a lot of ways as that magical Negro character in this film than Will Smith was. And I think Will Smith, if I didn't say this already in the podcast, surprised me. I think he is terrific in this role. He's not that old really? at this point. He had... Damon, you don't think so. He and Damon are about the same age, but he does seem to have that gravitas, that experience, that push-pull you said before about goading him. Man, just hook it in the woods and we'll get out of here. And then also talking him through stuff. I liked Will Smith in this movie more than I thought I would. Not that I thought I wouldn't like him, but I was just impressed with what is relatively early in his leading man career, not playing a Men in Black character, not playing the big hero in Independence Day, and not really truly the lead of the movie either. I thought he did a hell of a good job and a role that would have made more sense for a Morgan Freeman to play. So if you got Redford and Freeman, that would have been a pretty solid movie. But then you got guys who are pretty old, even in 2000, to play these roles. Although yeah. a God character would have made sense. He could be 95 and still play Bagger Vance. You could be 25. You could be 15 and play Bagger Vance if you think about what the character really is. And Will Smith, by the way, has been in some sports movies in a short period of time there. He was in Ali the next year, which we probably should cover this year. And then Concussion, which I don't know if we'll ever cover it, but it is a football movie. Not very much football and a very depressing film, but a good one. Now, you didn't agree with what I just said a minute ago. You don't think Will Smith is good in this? I had an interesting reaction because I wasn't quite expecting you to be so effusive about how much you enjoyed Will Smith. Will Smith is a leading man for a reason. It's because he oozes charisma on the screen. So it's really hard for me in any role of his to go up there and be like, yeah, I didn't like what he did there. He's charismatic. He wasn't very old at this point. I think he was only in his early 30s, 30, 31, 32, something like that at the time that this movie would have been released or filmed. They shot in September to December of 99, and he was born in September 68, so that makes him 31. Yeah, Will Smith was 31 at that point. Nailed it. And Damon was born, as I recall, in 1970, I think, so he wasn't even quite 30 when they were shooting this. One of my first impressions of Damon when I started watching this was, whoa, he's just a baby. He reminded me of Damon from Rounder. He's just got that baby face. It seems to me Matt Damon had a career where he was just super baby-faced and then just suddenly hit an age where he became not baby-faced anymore, but like grizzled or dad, it was a switch that got flipped. There was no aging progression. It was just all of a sudden overnight, he became 10 years older. I think of him in Goodwill Hunting. I think of him in Rounders. I think of him in this and Bagger Vance. And he just looks like he's... Also the Oceans films. The, the Oceans, Oceans films, films too. too, yeah. He seems like a kid compared to these guys. And yes, he's younger than Clooney and Pitt and those other guys, but not by that many years. As far as Will Smith goes, I didn't dislike him by any stretch of the imagination. It just felt like an odd 
casting choice, I guess, for the character that this is supposed to be. If it was Morgan Freeman that showed up and portrayed Beggar Vance, I'd be like, it makes perfect sense. He's a little bit older. He's wise. He just oozes that gravitas and charisma that you Or want. Jack Lemmon, if he had been Bagger Vance. Or Jack Lemmon. Granted, at the end of the movie, you don't have the scene where you have a young Bagger Vance necessarily showing up. But just the fact that you have a Bagger Vance showing up like 70 years later, still alive. You've made it very clear that he's not human. Exactly. So I think that would have worked a little bit better for me, especially in 2000 when this movie came out. Because like you said, at that time, Will Smith is just beginning to hit peak stardom levels. And he's known for, of course, Fresh Prince. He's known for ID4, for Independence Day. Men in Black. Wild Wild West, I think, was 99, right? So a lot of high-intensity, action-y, somewhat weird in some circumstances roles. And then all of a sudden you get this like super quiet and introspective performance. I like that, though. I like Variety. I kind of question whether this was exactly the right role for Will Smith at this point in his career. I think maybe it was a little bit of a stretch just seeking star power. But I'm not saying it's bad. I do think there were some scenes where his accent came and went a little bit. Oh, yeah. Where he slipped out of Southern and turned into, like, South Philly instead. Of the main stars, the best accent's probably Charlize Theron, the most consistent accent. And she had to be Southern in The Devil's Advocate a couple years before this, where wherever that movie's flaws are, Pacino has a lot of fun as the devil, and Keanu is Keanu. But Charlize Theron, and I think people think this more now than they did at the time, that was a star-making performance of epic level. She was terrific in that movie. And had to have an accent as well. And of course, she's from South Africa. And she's tried to shed that accent. Bev and I just recently covered her in Young Adult. But I've only ever talked about her now three times. Once with you and twice with Bev. Because Bev and I covered Monster years ago. But this is definitely one of my favorite actresses. The irony of me saying that is that in this era of 2000, more 2001, because it was the span of a couple of years, I was getting sick of her. She was overexposed. <laughs> I don't know if you saw the Oscars in 2005, probably. Whenever Chris Rock hosted and did that thing about how if you want Russell Crowe and you can only get Jude Law, wait. <laughs> and this whole thing was if you can only get this person, then just wait till you get somebody else. Because Jude Law that previous year was in a lot of movies. Well, that was true about Charlize Theron in the same time frame. She was in a ton of things. It isn't her fault when they get released. So when she did Monster, I'm thinking, oh, God, her again. And then she blows me away, wins the Oscar for that, one of the great performances ever. And she's also great in Young Adult, which Bev and I just did not that long ago. So now that I can look back at this and not be annoyed by the fact it's her again in this movie, I wouldn't say she's terrific. But, of course, she is the heart because she, she is. is the one that effectively brings Juna back. It's actually more the kid that does it, really. It's J. Michael Moncrief that brings Juna in. Well, I guess he wants to play anyway, but... Regardless, the love story is always underpinning this. And much like you, she loves the way he danced. I love the way you dance, Chris. Well, I got the moves, Ryan. You know that. <laughs> That's how I won you over. Let me compare this to the end of Avengers Endgame. As I recall, and I've not seen the actual end of that movie in a while. I've seen the Molnir scene many times on YouTube. I've seen the Avengers Assemble scene 108 times this month alone. But I've not watched the end of that movie in a long time. And I think the very last shot of Avengers Endgame, is finally Chris Evans, after all the years, what was it, eight years later, dancing with Peggy. Right. So Cap and Peggy are finally dancing together, and then they go to the credits. Well, the last scene of the characters, not the last scene of the movie in this case, but the last scene of the characters are Matt Damon and Charlize Theron dancing, and they're finally together. The love story in this movie is not a huge part of the movie. It's obviously about golf way more than anything else. I thought the two actors did a pretty good job. Damon and Theron should do something again together. Theron and Will Smith have because they're both in Hancock as superheroes. That's right, they are. So another tie-in. That was about seven Greek years later. Greek gods. 
But my secondary nutshell about Adele's character with Renov Juna. Women strengthen putts. What? Remember women weaken legs? Well, women strengthen putts. Because Juna only gets better at golf when he starts re-falling in love with Adele. I mentioned earlier that tonally this movie confused me a little bit, and this is one of the reasons why it did. And this is a little bit of a rarity for me, because me complaining about unnecessary romance plots within sports movies is a pretty common theme for us. But they set up a pretty good basis for this kind of reconnecting and gradual romancing kind of thing that goes on throughout the movie. The fact that these were young lovers that got separated because of Matt Damon's experiences in the war and his inability to process them and his like 12-year absence, that's a really sensible beginning to base this gradual reintroduction on. But then every time they met and just had moments together, it became weirdly sassy and goofy, and there was never much sincerity, it felt like, between them. I would write that off as defensiveness, particularly on the part of Matt Damon's character, because he doesn't want to own up to what he was experiencing. Except that that bloody soundtrack kept often playing in the background. And I'm like, no, you're undercutting the emotion. One of the better scenes of this, although slightly confusing to me, was demonstrating how both connected to the community Adele is, how self-possessed she was in 1930 in the south and as a woman as a woman exactly she still did i guess have a fondness and a connection to matt damon's character was when she goes and meets him at his presumably family home that is sort of like half derelict now and tries to half-heartedly maybe seduce him into playing in this tournament with hardy in the room and she knows he's there so she knows he's there and I think based on the camera cuts and her looks, she just assumes he's awake. And the kid's like, what, 11 years old, 12 years old, something like that? Give or take, yeah. Old enough that he's talking with his buddies about the hot ladies in town kind of stuff on the street, jokingly. So he's at least that old. But Matt Damon's like, bang me and maybe I'll play, right? And I think he said it half jokingly. But do you really think there was any chance in his character's mind that Adele would actually do that? Because if there's even half a chance that he thinks she's willing to sleep with me, these are old lovers, so it's not necessarily quite the same as her sleeping with random stranger to get what she needs to happen in order to save her club. It's sleeping with an old flame, essentially. It's just slightly less creepy, I guess, from that perspective. But there's still a 12-year-old kid in the room that she at least suspects is actually not asleep and is watching them. Matt Damon knows this, and he's willing to let it proceed to the point where she's straddling him in her underwear... Is it just me, or does that make Matt Damon a super creepy drunk dude that he's not only willing to take advantage of his old flame, but also willing to expose this young kid that he barely knows at this point to this experience that feels like it could be emotionally troubling for the young man for the rest of his life? I'll tell you how Redford would justify that they got away with it. There's one little insert shot where Damon's, I think, right hand looks like he's about to grip her arm and then, okay, now it's on. But instead he pulls back. As if to say, I do want to do this because he's probably horny. He's drunk. He already loved her to begin with. She's throwing herself at him because she needs this tournament to happen to save her family fortune. Her dad had shot himself however many years ago that was. I thought Harv Pernell would be in, in the movie more than he was. I saw his name in the credits and thought, okay, he'll be a part of this movie for nine seconds. <laughs> and then bang, gone. Yeah. Huh? The father in Fargo. You're not selling me a damn car here, Jerry. Were you surprised at how quickly they did that whole suicide thing? Yes. This is going to be the fanciest golf club in the world. Oh, depression and bang. And he's gone. And everyone just looks up from their dinner and then they move on. 
Okay. There may be deleted scenes, but it's move ahead, move ahead, move ahead kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So anyway, we'll throw Adele's motivations out for a minute because I think she feels like if I have to prostitute myself for this guy, then I will. And she feels like she was left behind by him, I think. Maybe that's why she's willing to say, if you don't respect me anymore and I am desperate, then fine. From his point of view, I think he literally wants to, but he is drunk. But that one little insert shot, I'm assuming, is what Redford and the filmmakers would say, that's his redemption in this moment, is that he doesn't do it in front of the kid. Because as soon as Adele leaves, he says, you can wake up now, or you can open your eyes now, or whatever it is. Your education's done, he says. Mm. I wouldn't say that scene ages badly in our modern era, where we try to be aware of these kinds of things, because he doesn't go through with it, and he probably was never going to. Maybe he was testing her as well. It could be that. Fair. It's not the greatest scene in the world. Probably didn't have to be in the movie. And isn't it after that when all the elders show up and pressure him even more? And it's just, just leave me alone. But he tries to leave town. He's driving away. But then all the locals, including some black people, we'll finally get the racism in a second here. It's for Savannah. It's for the South. Okay, fine. But oh my God, the pressure. So he does go back. <laughs> Did you notice, including Bagger, of course, that all three caddies, and this is probably not unusual in that time frame or any time frame, are not white. I did, yeah. Jones is caddy. We barely see him. I don't know if he has any dialogue at all. He's black. And then Hagen, we have a lot more screen time with his caddy than anyone else of the very small supporting players, is obviously from India. He's his driver and his caddy. He looks like a sick, right? There you go. Okay, right. That Maybe that's what it is. Right. So all three of them are not white. I'm glad racism wasn't a part of this movie, but it's also set in Savannah in 1930-ish, 1931-32, whatever. And nobody ever says that word. And you know that some of them would have thrown that around, including the tournament organizer, whoever that was. I think it's Nescalusa says to Bagger as he walks away because the tournament's not over. But Bagger feels like, oh, Juno's where he needs to be. Well, whatever. God realizes he finally got where he needs to be. So I'm going to leave, even though the tournament's not over. And I believe it's Nescalusa saying something like, you'll never work in this town again or something like that. I'm glad it wasn't there. But at the same point, this guy would have said that word. We've kind of touched on this in other movies that have more of a heavy race element to them and how we felt about the inclusion of certain language. And I agree with you, given the tone and the tenor and the content of this movie, even if we consciously and rationally know that, yeah, post-World War One South in America, not a great place to be if you're anybody that's not white, for sure. And you know what the language would have been that was thrown around, but I'm happy they didn't. It would have just felt unduly harsh, given the way that this is kind of like a saccharine perspective on these events anyway. It's not lost on me in watching this movie that is set in Georgia, and it is set in the 30s. And in that fourth and final round between these three guys, it's now becoming a real possibility that Juna might actually win the match after being down 10 or 12 strokes after the first 18 are played. And you see all of the townsfolk in Savannah all clambering to run to the golf course to watch the final holes, Mm -hmm. including all of the African-American population of the town. I couldn't shut off the rational part of my brain that knows how bad the exclusion and the segregation in the South was, especially around things like golf. People like Tiger Woods famously talk about their experiences in the 70s and 80s, just trying to get on golf courses or how they were discriminated against. And Augusta, right? The famous home of the Masters. And the Masters wasn't a tournament at this point, but it's also in Georgia and very famous golf course. They wouldn't allow women. They wouldn't allow any members of color onto their course for decades and decades and decades beyond when this movie is set. 
So Adele couldn't be on the grass, neither could Bagger, neither could Jones's caddy, neither could Hagen's caddy is what you're saying then. And then certainly none of those people, as you said, that flock to watch this now that make this a big deal. None of them could even be on the literal course is what you're saying then. Adele owns the course, so you have to exempt her. The caddies, I imagine, would probably be allowed in a tournament because it's people doing their job, but in their place. They aren't here for fun, oh, okay. right? It's all the spectators. And you do see in the crowds, in the final shots, you see a mix of races. I don't think that would happen. I think you just see a sea of white faces out there. Joe Average white person wouldn't stand beside Joe Average black person anyway. So they would have to be probably segregated, even though they're watching this golf game. And of course, one of the things about golf then and now, it's a very exclusionary kind of game. Can be, You have yeah. to have a decent amount of money just to play it at all. I'm not saying it's not racist, but it is a sport that requires money just to do it at all. But the irony is, of course, all you really need to play golf in a very basic way. We saw this in the early season. I think it was the first season of Lost. You just need a club and a ball and you can make a hole. But to play it the way we all think of it, the proper way, it's a very expensive sport compared to almost anything else. And of course, exclusionary back then and certainly exclusionary, well, better now, but still exclusionary now. I don't want to dwell on the racism too much, but we have covered a lot of movies about race this year. Yeah. And this is a movie that could have covered it. I guess it'd be two and a half hours long or more if it did. And Redford didn't want to get into that, I guess. But man, you set a movie in Georgia and you do cast, well, your number one star, your headlining star is a black guy and it isn't brought up at all. So there's a part of me that's very glad and a part of me that feels like, oh man, you really skirted over that one. It feels a little dishonest. My recollection is that a lot of the criticism of the movie at the time was just how much they did choose to absolutely ignore any of the commentary around racism in the South in this time, to ignore race at all and just sort of let the movie be its own thing. And I can understand that criticism. I don't think it's unwarranted, but that's Redford's choice. He just wanted to tell what was more or less a pretty heartfelt story about a single man getting help from a mystical entity. Cool. That's their choice. I guess you have to kind of respect that. Not every movie, I don't think, necessarily has to tackle every social issue and deal with it with the Agreed. grim, practical reality. As long as it doesn't become every movie glosses over it, right? Like, I think there's still a necessity and a time and a place for those discussions. And there's a time and a place for just something that makes you feel a little bit warm, fuzzy inside. And I think that's what Redford was going for here. Now, I did want to ask you one question about Bagger Vance. Aside from giving the weird counterintuitive reverse psychology advice to Matt Damon, he's whispering little snippets of wisdom or like, feel the ground, feel the ball. I don't know about you, but my mind, every time he did that, went directly to Kevin Nealon. It's a circle, Happy. It's a circle. You put the quarter in, you get on the carousel, you go up and down and around, in with the good energy, out with the bad. It just felt like he was channeling Kevin Nealon from Happy Gilmore. Every time Bagger Vance was giving some sort of mystical advice to Matt Damon, his face was just instantly replaced with Kevin Nealon's. And all I could think of was, why don't you go to your home? Are you too good for your home? <laughs> I wasn't thinking about that at all the time. Now I am. And the irony is that Happy Gilmore couldn't have been homaging this because it was four years earlier. Exactly. This would have to be homaging Happy Gilmore. But those scenes are very serious and they're supposed to mean so much and all that. And one of the things I really took away from this is that you have that scene where Bagger and Hardy, the kid version, scope out the course at night. It's a pretty long scene, actually, and a nice scene, actually. And Bagger's shoeless as well. Shoeless Joe. Shoeless Bag. <laughs> oh, God. Don't put that label on him, please. <laughs> shoeless Bag Jackson. But anyway, because of that scene, and somewhat through the film, because Hardy is the secondary caddy, whatever they call it, 
and he becomes the main caddy for the last hole, I guess, when Bagger just walks away, doesn't finish the job. God is not a completist. So anyway, because of that scene at night when they're on the golf course, Bagger and Hardy, Bagger, as far as screen time goes, coaches Hardy as much as he does Juna. And because we know that the older Hardy, as Jack Lemmon, played golf all the way through, we assume Juna did too, but we don't know that. We know that Hardy did. So maybe this movie really is more about the kid than any other character in this whole film. So J. Michael Moncrief, his only film role, he did other film things, but not as an actor. I thought he was pretty good as the kid. And he probably has about as much screen time as Damon does. And this movie, if you think about it, is maybe more about him for that reason alone. The bagger connects, as he has to, with Juna. But he also really connects with Hardy. He's thinking about the future. He's not just thinking about this guy in this moment and it's golf and what does that really mean anyway. But much like Seabiscuit, another sport that's about money, horse racing, in the Depression, it's bigger than all these things. But maybe in some ways this godlike character is looking long term to what it's going to mean to Hardy Graves as much as it's ever going to mean to Juna in this tournament over this weekend. Which incidentally seems to take place over three days. Maybe because of that rain out, because this is not just two days. It was supposed to be 36 holes in two straight days, so 72 in total, but I feel like it was three. I found that slightly difficult to follow as well. Maybe they're playing at 18 in the morning, they break for lunch, and that's why we keep seeing them go back to the locker room to change. They come back in the evening and play the final 18 late afternoon, early evening. I think it's meant to be over two days. They never really talk about the time frame, and I guess it doesn't really affect anything too much, but I agree with you. It was confusing how the time was going by. I like what you were saying there around the kid. And I agree with you. I thought the actor himself did a reasonably good job with what was probably a pretty demanding role. He has to give some speeches. He has to portray a lot of emotion. He did good. Looks like he was about 12 when they shot this. From Savannah, though. So he is a local boy. Oh, right. A local boy. (laughs) That's good. That makes sense. It's another point of comparison to me with Field of Dreams. And this is something that actually came to mind when I was watching the movie. Is this really Juna's movie or is it not? It's Hardy's movie, I think. Yeah. So is Field of Dreams Ray's movie or is it his dad's movie? Is it Doc's movie? Whose movie is that really? That's kind of how I felt about this too. You've got Bagger, this mystical entity that is nominally working with this one person, but is really maybe just looking out for this other ancillary character in the longer run. Or he's looking at the long-term future with the other one. So he's doing one thing, but he's doing multiple things. And if he is a god character, then why not? (laughs) Gods can multitask? (laughs) Why not? There's no time and place for them. Is that line at the end of Lost, I'll bring that up again, the very last episode. I love that show more than most people, where Jack's father says, there is no now here. Well, to a god, there is no now anywhere. It's true. Especially if we're talking about the God. Is there only now? Is now everywhere and always? Live in the now! (laughs) As Garth said to Wayne in Wayne's World. That was about guitars, also not important. Let me cover some of the things we always do, and we're at the end of the podcast. I'll do it right now, though. The Rotten Tomatoes numbers. I gave it a 7 out of 10 back in 2000. I'll give it the same number now. I didn't dislike it anyway, but that scene at the end, or towards the end, where Damon's honest about what happened with the ball... Love that so much. Thought about giving it an 8, but I'll stay with a 7. But the Rotten Tomatoes numbers are not like that. 43% of critics like this movie. That's it. 5.2 out of 10 was the average, and 65% of audiences. So the audiences gave it a fresh tomato. The critics did not. And it was 81st at the U.S. box office that year. Remember the Titans was 18th. We covered that last year. Bring It On was 37th. We covered that a while ago. And Girl Fight we covered last year also was 183rd. So a pretty diverse and interesting year. For sports movies in 2000, and we've covered those four, maybe other ones, but those four anyway. 
And of those four, Remember the Titans is my favorite, I would say, Disney movie. This isn't Disney, but it has a similar kind of Disney thing. But you know what's really similar to? You mentioned Field of Dreams, which I didn't think of. And I'm glad you brought that up and Happy Gilmore, too. But also, maybe because it's Redford, and of course he acted only in The Natural, but it reminds me of The Natural arc. The prodigy who goes away for a long time. We don't know why he's gone. Well, we know why he's gone, but the average person doesn't know why he's gone. He's brought down by a bit of hubris at times, has troubles. Juno does not listen to Bagger when he's actually finally playing well and has caught back up and pulls a tin cup. Yeah. He's three strokes back towards the end, even though he manages to tie in the end. And then the big comeback. So like in The Natural and maybe most sports movies, but I guess I thought of that because it's a Redford film that it's got a similar kind of arc to that as well. And Redford, by the way, also acted in Downhill Racer, a skiing movie long ago. I don't think he's ever directed any other sports movies other than this. I can't think of one off the top of my head. Although I watched Quiz Show on Prime not that long ago. It's a little too long, but that's a pretty solid film as well. Redford's movies as a director have always been pretty classy and well enough done. This is probably the biggest bomb, despite the stars and despite his star power and the way they positioned it in November. Anyway, your score. I'd probably go with a 7 of 10 as well. But with a little bit of an asterisk, because I fully recognize if I wasn't such a fan of golf, particularly the history of golf, I would be a lot harder on this movie. This is a movie that, unlike a lot of the things we actually talk about on a sports podcast, funnily enough, it spends a ton of time, as you alluded to earlier, around the actual game and the playing of the game. So to me, again, loving the sport and the history of it, portraying it with some level of historic accuracy, which I think they did reasonably well. The swings are all modern in style, mind you. Look up YouTube clips of Bobby Jones or Walter Hagen. Swings in the 30s were all wristy and fluid and weird looking, but I'm not going to fault them for that. The portrayal of the characters was good. The equipment all looked right. The actual sport and the shooting of it, as much as I ragged on that one body double shot, I thought was really good. And more than anything else, I was touched by the way that the movie was able to capture in very much the same way I feel about golf and what it meant to me growing up and how it shaped how I view a lot of things. The speech by the kid, that moment that you really loved at the end with Matt Damon, these are all very well done moments. So that brings my score up by like a good two points. Because if not for that, I feel like this is a movie, as we've talked about, that was kind of at odds with itself, with the story it wanted to tell. It doesn't surprise me that fans would like it more than the critics, because you talked about, when we were speaking about Matt Damon's character, how much his character goes through. His character arc is pretty complex in intention, at least. That character goes through a lot. But at the same time, very little actually happens. You basically got him coming home and then playing a game of golf. Really, that's about it. So I can understand somebody watching this movie and going, what the hell just happened here? What did I just watch for two hours? Because it feels like I didn't watch much of anything. Unless you're deeply into the sport or you're deeply into trying to figure out what's going on with Matt Damon's character, his whole psychological journey, and maybe what Bagger Vance means to him and the kid. It's a movie that I could see being incredibly divisive. Let me put it that way. Which it was 21 years ago. I didn't say, by the way, that Jeremy Levin, who also wrote The Notebook, which I'm not a big fan of, but many people are, wrote this. And it is based on Stephen Pressfield's book from five years earlier in 1995. And the music he didn't like was by Rachel Portman. And I didn't love the music either. I don't remember exactly what you mean by that music, but I thought it was a little bit too much. But it did look good. And Michael Ballhaus, Marty Scorsese's regular cameraman, especially at this time frame, is the one who did shoot this for Redford. And yeah, we said there's a lot of golf in it. We think it's pretty authentic. And it's not easy to find people who can golf, even though Will Smith himself 
maybe by this point, but certainly in the time since, he's become a huge golfer. And the one time we ever see him take a swing looks pretty authentic, too. I think I know what you're talking about with that whole thing where Damon had a stunt double and it did not look very accurate. You're right. But basically, it seemed like it was okay considering, and they do have to have a lot of swings in this movie. Not everybody can have Costner as your golfer, I guess, for a huge part of the film. As far as the score factor, Damon and Theron are a beautiful pair. Even a scruffy, unshaven Will Smith has always been cute as hell. It's romantic, but it's not a movie with sexual snap, which I guess is typical of sports films, but I don't think you can score. But it would be a pretty good date movie, though, too, if you can get past some of the flaws and just enjoy the tame, slow pace. I agree with you. I think this is a movie where it is scorable, but you got to do it early. <laughs> Your moment comes and goes when Charlize Theron's character is trying to seduce Matt Damon, even prior to her stripping down to her 1930s lingerie, which was more coverage than you would see on many dresses on women in 2020. But nonetheless, <laughs> I haven't watched a lot of movies with Charlize Theron in them in recent years. Prometheus, she's been in the Fast and Furious movie. She was in Atomic Blonde, I think it was. Mad Max. She's doing a lot of action-y movies where she's not anymore trying to make herself up as sort of the sexy starlet of Hollywood that she was portrayed as when she was a younger woman. But this movie... Good God, it reminded me how attractive Charlize Theron is. She is a next-level beautiful woman, even by Hollywood standards. So for that reason alone, I give this at least a moderate scoring factor. And yes, of course, listen, Matt Damon, Will Smith, even Scruffy, they're very attractive men as well. But man, they don't hold a candle in my eyes to Charlize, I got to tell you. Yeah, she was something else then, she's something else now, and such a great actress on top of everything else. And as I said, at this time frame, I didn't think so. But in the few years after this, when she did Monster and the many years since, I've reversed course on that. Because of these three actors, she's probably the best one. And at that time, I don't think I would have thought that. Damon Smith and her, all very good. And I've liked them all in many things. But Theron is a tremendous performer. She's a superstar. Was then. We didn't know it yet. But she is certainly now. Okay, I saw you take a sip of that beverage. How was it? Like I always feel with scotch, it's smooth and delicious. And just makes me yearn for Scotland. Ah, the bunny brays. Well, they invented this sport we just talked about, good old golf, here in May. We're now in May, right? We record this in April. It comes out in May. Well, it'll definitely be May when we do our next podcast in two weeks. We'll get back on the pitch and talk about a sport we are not well-informed about, and that's soccer, our second soccer movie, as we analyze The Damned United. Don't blame me if you don't like that word. That's what the movie's called. Oh, my virgin ears! (laughs) Okay, my beverage is gone, and my water's getting low, and my bladder's getting really full. So... I'll wrap it up by saying we're on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at ScoringAtMovies. You can find us on Podbean, where all the podcasts are for our website. And then, of course, we're also on Stitcher and Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Deezer and Amazon and all these places. Wherever you like to get podcasts, we're probably there. All 77 episodes of Scoring at the Movies. Take your easy, God. I know that you can hit a hole in one.